We are starting in a series this morning I'm calling On the Road. And this comes from a pretty well-known passage in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. I'm sure most of you are familiar with it, but just to catch you up. So, on the day of Jesus' resurrection, He appears to some people. And there's confusion. You can imagine if you were in that initial group, your, your Savior, the guy you're counting on, your mentor, your rabbi, he's crucified, he suffers terribly, and you see him buried. And now later there's this confusion. Somebody said he's raised from the dead, and the, the tomb appears to be empty. And, and in Luke 24, there's a couple of his followers, Cleopas, by name one, and we don't know the name of his friend. And they're leaving Jerusalem where they've been hanging out, and they're going back to their village of Emmaus, and they're on the road to Emmaus. And they're talking about this, and they're sharing their confusion. And as they're talking, a stranger comes up and he joins them. And he says, hey guys, what are you talking about? What's going on? And they're like, you're the only guy in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened? And so he says, well, tell me about it. You know what? And they say, well, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And we thought He was going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time, but now it's three days since He was crucified. And some of uh, the women of our number, they've said He's risen from the dead and His tomb is empty and we just don't know what to make of it all. Now, of course, the stranger we know is Jesus, but they don't know that in the moment. And so Jesus says this to them, "...foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken." Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in the Scriptures. Beginning with Moses, going back to the first part of the Bible, Jesus has this conversation with them in which He looks back at key Old Testament texts and He says, guys, you shouldn't have been surprised by this. Because God had said through Moses and the prophets, this is what would happen to the Messiah. So Jesus says basically, my story, his story is woven throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Jesus is in there. And I suspect that the passages he was highlighting that day, and we don't have a record of it. You know, for people who study Luke 24, most of us go away saying, man, wouldn't it have been nice to have been on the road, to have heard what Jesus said to them. But we do have the text, by the way, that he was referencing. Moses and the prophets. That's our Old Testament. And so Jesus says, my story was there. If you had eyes to see it, it was there all along. You shouldn't have been surprised. Probably referring specifically to passages like Exodus, where you learn about the Passover lamb. Or Psalm 22. Or Isaiah 52 and 53, these key passages that there would be a Messiah who would suffer. Not the grand king that would return, but this suffering servant. He was there all along, he says. And what I hope to do, in a sense, is join them on the road to Emmaus, but more broadly, and we won't even get to things, probably in this series, like uh, Exodus. My plan, my hope is to look at 12 lessons from simply the book of Genesis itself. And so this will be much broader than just messianic messages that Jesus might have gone over with them, things specific to His incarnation 
and to His crucifixion and glory. It'll be a little broader than just crucifixion and suffering servants. But uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I'm getting excited about it. There are ways in Genesis in which creation, people, and promises ultimately point to Jesus. Just like those elements in the hidden picture. There are shadows. And some of them are whispers and some of them are pretty bold road signs that point to what God was up to in the incarnation and the crucifixion. And my hope is that these studies become lenses by which we see Christ more fully. I'm convinced, and I I think as Christians we would say we're convinced, that life worth living, life worth having is founded on knowing who Jesus Christ is, knowing Him deeply, really, as He is. John 17, 3, Jesus says that's life. And you know that not infrequently you'll hear in this church that we encourage you, we exhort you, we model reading our Bibles. This is a good thing, because God is revealed in the Bible. Jesus says, here I was in the Old Testament. But you know, the culture that Jesus went to in the Incarnation, they read their Bibles. We would say Torah or the Tanakh. They read the Law of the Prophets and the Writings. But when Jesus showed up, they didn't know that those writings were talking about Him. And you know, it's possible for us today to be just like those Pharisees. And we may not be such great hypocrites, maybe. We'll give ourselves some credit here. But isn't it possible to read the text and not see Christ? You know, I love literature, I love studying, I'm a student, that's why I like teaching, because I like everything about learning. And so, you know, one of the temptations for me when I read my Bible, it's I'm thrilled about the literary devices. I'm thrilled about chiasm and pericopes and definitions. But good as all that is, and, and I love that, that God's got all that in there for us. You know, the Bible is literature at the highest level possible. But if it doesn't become more than that, it's just an educational or academic exercise. And that's not what God intends for us from the Scriptures. So God wants us to see His Son as we read His book, Old Testament or New. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis did a a book, uh, it's a great book, if you've never read it, called The Four Loves, in which he does a study, pretty brief, on the four key Greek terms used for love. And he points out elements about each one of them. And most of you, if you read your Bible, you're aware that there's agape love, and there's phileo love, and there's erotic love, and there's storge love. Most of us, most of the time, uh, especially for guys, uh, phileo love, Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love, and that's what it means, brotherly love, friendship love. And that is that we're walking side by side with our friend. We're facing the world. The world's in front of us. And we're facing it together. And we're discovering things together. And we're not by ourselves. And we're fellowshipping with someone else side by side. Looking at the world ahead. And that's a great thing. That's one of the things God means for us to have. And some of us go through life. And we know Jesus is not only my Savior, but He's my friend. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's with me all the time. And I... Walk through life with Jesus. And that's all a good thing. That's fellowship. Jesus is with me as I engage in life. 
But that's ultimately not adequate either when we're thinking about Christ, when we look in the Bible. What does God want for us in that relationship? Now, if you, if you can take the sexual element out of erotic love, if you think of two lovers, two lovers, think of an engaged couple, think of a newly wed couple, are they facing the world together like this, out facing the same, or are they facing each other? They're facing each other. That this kind of intimate love is meant to be face to face. We are gazing into each other. It's not that we're looking at the world together. That's good. That's one form of friendship and relationship. And we have that with Christ. But the other thing is, and the deeper thing is, it's face to face. And that's what we want to end up with as we read our Bibles. We want to end up with face to face fellowship with Jesus. And so it's my hope that as we look at some of these studies, you gain new insights into the reality of who is Jesus and what is He really like. And it's not just that I walk through life with Christ at my side. It's that I see Him as He is. He knows us as we are, doesn't He? He knows everything. There's no surprises. We can't hide anything. But the thing for us as we read through the Bible prayerfully and trusting God's Spirit to enlighten us, we want to see Jesus face to face. We don't want to stop with friendship facing the world ahead. That's good. We're glad for that. But we want to come to grips with the reality of the person of Christ. To love God is to love Christ. You can't love what you don't know. And so my hope is that these are lenses by which we can see Jesus more fully and love Him more fully and feel enlivened because we know Him as He is or a little bit as much as we can here on the earth. So having said all that, this morning we're going to look at Jesus and creation or Jesus as creator. I hope you have a study sheet. There's some verses that we won't go over together this morning. But I want to start with something that will sound a little academic, I'm afraid, but stick with me. This is, this is a comparison of Genesis 1, the opening phrases in the first book of the Bible that Jesus took those folks on the road to Emmaus through, Genesis 1. And we'll compare that to John 1. So this is all about Jesus and creation or Jesus as creator. So Genesis 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness He called night and there was evening and there was morning one day. It's a grand start, isn't it? Now go to John 1 if you've got your Bibles. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or overcome it. If you've got your study sheet, you should have this comparison where these verses are broken up next to each other. Do you think John the Apostle knew what he was doing was intentional when he opened up his gospel here? So listen, you know as soon as you hear these two passages, wow, those sound pretty much the same. 
And that's intentional, isn't it? So look at your study sheet there if you have one. In the beginning, God. Genesis 1, the creation account. That's what the Jews grew up with. In the beginning, God. And then you go to John 1, and John says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So, in the beginning, God, says Genesis 1. And John says, in the beginning, God, the Word. In the beginning, the Word, and the Word is God. Look at that next phrase from Genesis. This God who was in the beginning, before there was a beginning, there was God. When the beginning started, God was there. And then He created the heavens and the earth. Go to John. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John says, in the beginning, the Word created the heavens and the earth. Go back to Genesis again. The earth, formless void, darkness. God says, let there be light. Then God separates light from darkness and there is day one. Dark beginning, light shines in. Go back to John. In Him, in the Word, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it or comprehend it. John is making sure that there is absolutely no doubt for anyone who reads his account of Jesus the Messiah. He's saying right off the bat, that Jesus is Elohim Yahweh of the Old Testament. Jesus, this man on the earth, is Elohim, is God of Genesis 1.1. One and the same. This is a pretty big claim. Pretty big claim indeed. Now John's got two audiences when he writes his gospel. One is Jewish. One is Gentile. And the Gentile world has a Greek thought. Let's just think through this for just a minute. When John uses the language of Genesis in the opening of his gospel, every Jew who hears that knows what he's saying. John is saying about Jesus the same things that Moses wrote about Elohim, Yahweh. John is saying by all this similar language and associating the word who he says is Jesus... With Genesis 1, Jesus is Elohim of Genesis 1. Jesus is Yahweh. That means Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is the God of Sinai and Moses. Jesus is David's God. They are one and the same. And He makes absolutely no way out for us. His Gospel starts by saying Jesus is the eternal God. So the Jews, as soon as they read John 1, they know what John is saying. Jesus is the same as God. No difference. Absolutely the same. He goes a step further too. When John uses the word, word, and the Greek is logos, when he uses that, think back to Genesis 1. What does every creative element of God come from? Then God said... Every creative element in the Genesis account is God's Word. So John goes one step further and he says, 
the Word that spoke creation into existence in Genesis 1 is the Word made flesh in John 1. The Word, God's Word created the world. Jesus is God's Word. Jesus is God. He's the Logos. So for all the Jews, they know from John's Gospel, John says Jesus is God. He's Elohim, He's Yahweh. That would be a more startling declaration for a Jew than it would be for us today. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But if you read through John's Gospel, you see that he sprinkles this language throughout, uniquely in John's Gospel. John 5, he called God his Father, making himself equal with God. John 10, you being a man, the Jews said, make yourself out to be God. And John 14, when Philip says famously, you know, that night of the Last Supper, hey, show us the Father. It's enough for us. You know, just a little hat trick. Show me the Father, it's enough. And Jesus says, Philip, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I were one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 1, Genesis 1, it's the same thing. Now, to the Greek audience, John was very shrewd also, or the Holy Spirit through John was very shrewd again. So, you know, in the Greek world, the larger Roman world that the Gospel initially went out to, they had a very different worldview than the Jews did. So, in their worldview, life is sort of this, of this dual nature. And in the Greek mind, in the Roman mind of this time... There was uh, an ideal world that was spiritual and immaterial. And those were the originals, if you will, prototypes. And then down here on the earth, there was the material copies of those heavenly spiritual prototypes. So if you saw a chair here on the earth, you'd say, well, you know what? There's actually, this is a copy of a divine prototype of a chair. Now the divine, that's the, that's the one to be desired. It's immaterial. It's perfect. On the earth though, you know, we fall apart. The, the copies here on the earth, they're not as good as the sublime originals. So there's this dual nature to life for the Greeks. And so John says in his gospel, Jesus is the Logos. Well, for the Greeks, this means you're saying that a man on earth is both the prototype, the spiritual archetypal, essential original, and at the same time, he's feet on the ground, human flesh and blood, humanity. See, John's saying to the Roman world that in Jesus the impossible has happened, that heaven and earth have met each other in this person, that the divine and the human are one, that form and substance have now been united in a man. And this was absolutely unimaginable to the Greek world. So whether you were a Jew or a Greek, this claim that Jesus is God Himself, God in the flesh, pretty hard to take. Pretty hard to fathom. Your study sheet has a few other verses, by the way, going into the New Testament that talk about this same thing. Now, one of the things that happens to us, I'm afraid, over time is that we, we grow jaded and what's holy and divine becomes commonplace and we lose its value. So if you've grown up in the church or if you've been around the Bible very long and someone says to you, Jesus is God, you say, yeah, yeah, I know that. Jesus is God. I got that. And then I think, well, maybe not. You know, we say we know something, but how well do we really know it? It's an extravagant claim and I think... We tend to give lip service to that reality. 
when I sit in my uh, library at home and I think about the Rocky Mountains, which I do often, and I haven't got there for about four years now. So I think about the Rocky Mountains and I think, oh yeah, there's, it's so nice. So nice to be up there. The smell, pine trees. Deneen, the Hilgers were in Montana. She brought me back pine boughs and combs and I've got them in my office. And every once in a while I walk up and I go, because they're a year old, but they still smell fresh. So I think about it, what it smells like, what it looks like, what it feels like to be there. But you know the truth is, every time I stand physically before the Grand Tetons near Jackson Hole, Wyoming, I am just blown away. It's not a memory. The, the reality of how majestic and gorgeous and beautiful they are, it's humbling to me. It's like, wow. You know, when I sit in my library, I say, yeah, I know, I know the Rockies. I've been there. I've done that. No, then I see them again. It's like, unbelievable. Or if I tell you that I like sirloin steak, which I do, and I could say, yeah, I really like sirloin steak. Well, if I say it that way, but I'm full and I'm not hungry in the moment, it's like, you know, yeah, Mike likes sirloin. But if I'm hungry, like last Friday night, when we went out for sirloin steak, when I sit down and I enjoy that steak, then suddenly it's very different because in the moment, I'm savoring the reality of that. It's not a memory. It's not just a yes, yes to something. I'm getting it in the moment. How good this is or how important something is. And to say that we know that Jesus is God, I don't think is the same as bowing humbly in worship because we really get that Jesus is God. I don't think saying it and really knowing it is the same thing. Are there any uh, Doctor Who fans in the house? Or anyone willing to say it? Kristen, you've got to help me out here. Okay, how many here have seen the, the British TV show Doctor Who? Okay, so Kathy and I, we've checked it out. So for those of you who haven't seen it, Doctor Who is a Time Lord. Fictional account, of course. And Doctor Who travels time and space on a series of adventures. This thing's been going on, I think, for four decades, this television show. Gone through multiple versions of who's Doctor Who and who's his helper and everything else. But Doctor Who's means of time travel, time and space travel, is a blue public telephone booth, like you would have seen in years gone by in London. Not red, but blue. And that's how he travels. Well, everyone's response to seeing the inside of the booth is always the same. So they see the box outside, and if they get a peek inside the door, there's a, there's a square blue public t phone booth on the outside. But if you look inside the door, that's not what you see. You see this huge spaceship. And it's got all the controls and the gadgets and the whistles, and it's tall and it's big and it's round. And everybody says the same thing. It's bigger on the inside than on the outside. And that would be the point. And if we take our measure of Jesus based on what you can see on the outside, you don't have His measure at all. We don't get it. It's just like that. Bigger on the inside than on the outside. William Blake was another Brit. I guess this is a Brit morning thinking of these illustrations. British uh, author, poet, illustrator, artist. He has a poem called Auguries of Innocence or Omens of Innocence. Antony, you can read this later if you haven't. It's a good one. Listen to his famous four first lines though. He said this, To see a world, a world, 
in a grain of sand, and a heaven in a wildflower. Hold infinity, hold infinity, in the palm of your hand, and eternity in an hour. You see, Blake is combining these things that appear to be opposites together. So how can you get a world in a grain of sand? How can you get eternity in a segment and portion of time? They seem incompatible, impossible. But that's exactly what we're talking about when you talk about Yahweh Elohim, the eternal, infinite God, incarnate in our flesh, walking the earth, in our humanity. It's no less a puzzle than this. We sometimes call mystery things that I don't think are mysteries at all. We don't understand some of them. We say, well, that's a mystery. Biblically, a mystery is something that we don't know if God doesn't tell us. And then even beyond that, God tells us something, and in our finite understanding, we don't know how the two can be true at the same time. But there it is. And that's the case with Jesus and the Incarnation. So the ability to see the vast in the small, the infinite in the finite, that is what's required to come to grips with Jesus in His humanity and His deity. God the Son, immeasurable, infinite, eternal, somehow pours Himself into the container of a, a grain of sand in our humanity. Isn't this the, the Eternal One who occupies every atom and the space between every atom in all the universe, somehow accommodates that omnipotence and omnipresence into a human shell. How does He do that? He doesn't quit being God. But yet there He is. It is the world in a grain of sand. It's e eternity in an hour that's jesus that is a mystery but that's what it says now the incarnation is staggering enough so if you say god becomes man that's it's a big deal how we get there i can't even get there but it gets better doesn't it because not only does jesus become man take on our humanity but then he suffers this incredible humiliation and suffering so real briefly the creator of all things, subject to the greatest insults, the most horrific physical assaults in his crucifixion. The awful holy wrath of God is poured out on Christ on the cross. Now, everything God does is perfect by his very nature. So when Jesus absorbs God's wrath due our sins, he absorbs God's perfect wrath fully and perfectly. We can't get there. We, what, what did that feel like? Jesus don't know. Don't have the senses, the ability to even fathom what that was like. But he does. Drinks to the full the Father's hatred for sin. Counted the vilest of human beings. So incarnate, that'd be a trick. Now humiliated and suffering, the suffering servant. Difficult again, even more difficult to get there. So, why the incarnation? And why the humiliation? You know, Scripture says uh, more than one reason for this, and, and I want to focus primarily on one, and maybe two here briefly. You know that there are about 100,000 new English novels, works of fiction printed every year, about 100,000, just in the English language. You know what that means? That means we love stories. 
Can't get enough of them. And you know the classical venue for a story, of course, is that there's a hero and there's a villain. There's a damsel in distress that needs to be rescued, isn't there? Now, the stories have changed. Modern stories, it's anti-heroes, it's anti-everything. you know everything. So, classic though. Heroes and villains and a cause, a person to save. And see, this is the deal. There's a reason that we're drawn to those kinds of stories because that's the story God has written, isn't it? God's an author. And He's written a story. And in His story, He's got a hero. And isn't this interesting? You know, if we write our own story, we can do anything we want, right? God's an author and He can do anything He writes. And He wrote Himself into the story. And He made Himself the hero. Wow! The Father made His Son the hero of the story of reality. That's the thing that's going on here. Jesus is the hero of God's story. You know from Philippians 2, and and I'll just go briefly through a few of the phrases so that we remember what's going on. Jesus empties Himself, takes the form of a bondservant, humbles Himself, obedient to death. Why is that? According to Philippians 2, there's a reason. Philippians 2 verse 9, for this reason... What reason? Jesus' incarnation and humiliation. God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name above every name. Why the incarnation? Why the suffering and the humiliation? Because God the Father meant to honor His Son. God the Father wanted to exalt and lift up His Son, the second person of the Trinity. So Paul says it's for this reason that God exalts Him. The incarnation and the crucifixion. His humiliation. Verse 10 says the same thing. So that... Why again? Incarnation, humiliation, crucifixion. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Those in heaven and on earth. Under the earth. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why the incarnation, that's why suffering and crucifixion and humiliation, so that God the Father can honor His Son. Why did God become man? Why did Jesus suffer? It was the purpose of the Father to honor His Son and to sum up all things in Jesus. So, you've got a story now in which Jesus sums up for the Greeks the eternal, immaterial, and the real that's summed up in Jesus. And now God in Himself sums up both Himself as Creator, but also creation. And God raises humanity to the highest level possible by becoming one of us. And then bringing us into this relationship with Him. So this was about God the Father giving glory and honor to God the Son. Now, we know Jesus came to die for our sins, right? We know that. That's the easy answer. There's more to the story than that. God was out to honor Himself. Now, sometimes you'll hear people talk about the Gospel this way. Uh, God created Adam and Eve in the garden and a terrible accident occurred. They sinned. Man, God didn't see that one coming. Now He's scratching His head saying, thinking, what am I going to do now? Oh, I know. This is what I'll do. You know, that's not it. Not it at all. There was no emergency here for God. There were no surprises, were there? When He created the heavens and the earth, did He know what was coming? A God who knows all things can't not know something. 
listen to Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 1. Because the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, glorification of Jesus, this was in the eternal plans of God. This was always what God intended to do. No accident, not something that came up short, short notice. No, nope, this was always God's purpose and plan. Now Ephesians 1 is pretty high water mark for New Testament theology and we're not going to dive into uh, almost anything here, but I just want you to get the, the sense of what Paul is saying about God and His purposes. Verses 3 through 11. The Father chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. That means God knew what was going on before it happened. Before the foundation of the world. In love, He, God, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Predestined means something had been set in motion way before that was going to take place in time. No accidents for God. God's fully in control of everything that happens. Now, verses 9 and 10 get a little bit more important for me here this morning because God purposed in Christ an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, and that is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on the earth. God's eternal purposes were to sum up everything in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what He was about. The creation of the heavens and the earth was about summing up all things in Jesus, in the second person of the Trinity. It goes on later... There in verse uh, 20 on, he put all things in subjection under Jesus. He's head over all things to the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Everything God does, he does with perfection. It always expresses the perfection of his attributes. And God was out to sum up, to create a world in which he himself would become the hero and the Father would be able to honor the Son who would in Himself sum up all things. God was always about uniting, as it were, Creator and creation. The ineffable with the spoken. The eternal with the momentary. That's what God was up to in the Incarnation. The Creator of the world is the author of the greatest story ever told, and that's the story you and I find ourselves in. Now, this is encouraging to me. If you say, so what? For me this morning, there's a couple so what's. One is that to the degree that we know Jesus, we, we experience life. To see God is to see glory. It's to be elevated. To know Him is glorious. But it also speaks to me every day where I'm at. The one who created us is the one who saves us. Our Creator and our Savior are one and the same. The God who spoke light into the darkness of that first day is the one who shines His light into the, all the dark crevices of your life and mine. There's nothing hidden to God, and that's a good thing. The light giver is the one that we interact with today. The one who holds the molecules of the universe together, that's what Scripture says Jesus does, by the exercise of His will, is the one who's holding your life and mine together too. Does that comfort you? Do you think if He holds the universe that we can't even measure together, do you think it's possible for God to hold your life together in mine? When it feels like it's not, God's still holding us together. The one who sets the stars in the heavens and calls them by name is the one who calls your name and mine. 
I took a walk this morning about 5.30 or 6. Glorious. Jupiter's up high. The, the skies have been great just with this cool weather. And when I look up there, I say, you know, Scripture says God knows every star and He's called them all by name. That's pretty impressive. We can't count them. But they're glorious. When I look at the stars, I think they're my friends. They're always there. You know, they move around like the moon, but they're my friends. Well, God, the one who put them up there, He knows all of them by name. That's the one that's interacting in my life and yours. If He can do that, He's adequate for whatever we face in our life today or tomorrow or next week. And our Creator is not like the Greek gods. You know, the Romans and the Greeks, they worship multiple gods. And those gods, what are they like? Well, they're high away on Mount Olympus. They're separate, they're apart. And when they interact with humanity, what does that look like? More often than not, it's capricious, isn't it? They're like kids. You know, take their keys away, please. You know, those are the folks that are messing with my life. Not like that at all. No, this God knows us and loves us as we are. He knows and He cares. Let me wind down with John 20. Uh, the ultimate so what for me on this uh, comes down to this, John 20. You know, Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, those folks head out at the end of the day, headed back home, and Jesus comes and visits them. Well, he also visited another group that same evening, didn't he? He visited the apostles. He showed them himself. He said, here I am, guys. See my wounds. It's me. I was just crucified. You know what I look like. Here I am. This is me. Only one of them wasn't there. Was he? Thomas. We don't know why, but Thomas wasn't there. So the disciples say to him, hey, Tom, he's risen and, and he was here. And what's Thomas say? Now, and by the way, cut Thomas slack, okay? Thomas is one of my heroes. So, you know, Thomas says famously, you know, I won't, I won't believe it. You know, now his Savior, the guy he was counting on, just like the disciples on the road, they were counting on him and now he's crucified, now he's gone. What's with that? You know, I believed and now I'm confused. I don't know what to make of all this. So Thomas is hurt. He's dejected. He's confused. He says, listen, if I don't see him, if I don't see the wounds, if I don't stick my hand in his side, I'm not believing. You know, I'm not going to be brought up to be let down again. And so eight days later, what happens? Jesus shows up again and there's Thomas and Jesus had heard that conversation a week earlier, hadn't he? And so Jesus says to him, Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but believing. And isn't this neat? I love this. Jesus says, see my wounds. And Tom, would you like, stick your hand in my side. Go ahead. That's weird, isn't it? But you know what this means? Jesus will accommodate our doubts. When we say, Lord, I don't get it, that's okay. He says, that's okay. You need something here. Just stick your hand right in there. Because I want you to believe. And when Thomas gets it, what's he do? My Lord and my God. That's the deal. You talk about incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, humiliation. That's it. Thomas gets it. My Lord and my God. These two, they appear to be opposite God and humanity. Nope, they're together. And when he sees Jesus, he gets it, doesn't he? Jesus is my Lord, my human leader, but he's also my God. And that's Thomas's act of worship. And guys, that's where this ends, really. 
You know, there's no higher calling for us in our humanity than to worship God, our Maker. You can't worship what you don't know. And we want to see Christ so fully that when you're in worship or when you're reading your Bible and the Holy Spirit opens that up to your mind and you see Christ again, or maybe for the first time, you're down with Thomas. I get it. My Lord and my God. Father, would you do your holy work by your Spirit in us and would you help us to see the glories of your Son, the Lord Jesus? Would you help us to join Thomas, not being unbelieving, but believing? Would you help us to fall with him on our knees and worship you as Lord and God?